Here we go. It's Monday night, just past 7 o'clock. It's time for Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. No time to dilly-dally today. Ira, we've got so much to talk about. But first and foremost, what a great time for South Florida basketball. This has been some amazing run for us. This is great. FAU and my, if I said FAU Miami in the Final Four, like two months ago, you're like, are you crazy? Are you like that's, me? A, that's the nuttiest thing you've ever imagined. And it's been great. But it's also just been great to be in South Florida. I mean, just to look at my week. Tuesday, I'm at the World Baseball Classic in Miami. They had more fans there than they've had since the All-Star Game, but probably even more than the All-Star Game mm-hmm. that was there. The most electric scene there at Lone Depot Stadium, which is where the Marlins play. Then Wednesday, I watch Heat versus Knicks in a thrilling game with the Heat play, one of their best games of, of the season. They needed it, too. And then I'm at, and then Thursday took off. Friday, Saturday, <laughs> Sunday, and Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and today I'm at the Miami Open watching the best tennis players in the world. This has just been tremendous and great, and I'll tell you the funny thing was I stayed down there uh, in, in South Florida, well, we are in South Florida, but I guess in the Miami, Florida, Lauderdale area, and trying to find a place to watch these basketball games drove me nuts the first couple of nights, really? and I went to a hotel room I had a hotel right next to Miami University, and they and they didn't have CBS. I couldn't watch the Miami game, and I had to go to a, a Hooters. They didn't have the sound on, which I couldn't stand when I have sound. But I finally found out. I'm going to give a shout out to the Seminole Hard Rock Casino. That sports area they have with the sound, with the table. I was in heaven for two days, leaving the Miami Open, rushing there and watching those games on like a 500 inch television set with great sound with the fans. So I love that. So thankfully, the Seminole Hard Rock Casino has an amazing. That's where the sports book will be. They don't have a sports book yeah. there. If we were gambling, then I'd be, you know, gambling there at that time. <laughs> but it was. This has been just great. South Florida is awesome. Yeah, and you can follow along uh, with Ira on his exploits all across social media at Ira on Sports. We're going to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the Final Four and the March Madness, but we're also going to bring on Coach James Young. Had him on two weeks ago. This guy is fantastic. He's a, a, an encyclopedia when it comes to these games, and we're excited for this. Yeah, he's just going to break down the the Miami-Connecticut game and the FAU-San Diego State game. So I know people are excited for Saturday. People are saying, oh, the game's on Thursday. No, no, you get, you get the week off for basketball. It's just going to be two games on Saturday and then the, fi- the final game should be game next Monday. So we'll, hopefully I'll be in Houston before the game, so we'll be broadcasting next week. I'll be in Houston. So um, we're also going to do part two of Dwight Gooden here. Fantastic interview we did with him. That We'll do that at 7.35. If you'd like to hear uh, part one and you didn't catch it, you can get it at soundcloud.com slash Ira on sports. Interesting stat I pulled up, Ira. You know, Tony Gwynn, maybe the best hitter of the last 30 years, batted 313 against Hall of Fame pitchers. His lowest batting average versus any pitcher in his career, Dwight Gooden, 243. <laughs> That's how good Dwight Gooden was when he was pitching good. Well, this interview, we, we taped this interview a, a couple weeks ago, and the second part, he's going to go into this whole Yankee and the no-hitter and the stories are great. So definitely it's a must-listen-to interview. Yeah, that happens at 7.35. All right, NCAA basketball time, Ira. Everyone's brackets busted on they? Nobody picked this. Nobody picked it. I think San Diego State, there was 0.8% picked the brackets. FAU is 0.2%. Connecticut, 5%. And at Miami, 1%. So pretty amazing. I, but the one thing that we talked about on the show for, I would say, the whole year is I said, look at the top 25. Any one of these teams can win. And all these teams have been in the top 25. Connecticut started the year 14-0, and and then they lost 8 out of 10 games, came back. FAU, we were excited when they were in the top 20. And uh, Miami, clearly, and so did San Diego State. The San Diego State was a fifth seed. I think FAU, FAU was too low a seed. I mean, they were a top 20 team. I don't know why they were a ninth seed. That was crazy anyway for them to be seeded so low. But I, it was one of those years where you looked at the best teams and said, there's no superstar team. They're not great. There's, something's going to happen. Now, Connecticut looks amazing now, but during the season, they certainly worked dominant. They have a number eight losses. So. 
Um, you know, it's interesting. If you normally, if you add up the final four, if you add up the seeds, it's usually between six and seven. It's 23 this year. It's crazy <laughs> when you think about it. So FAU is on just this fantastic run. We had Dusty May on a couple of weeks ago uh, before this all started. Hopefully we can get him on again after after this all wraps up. But they get to the Sweet 16, and everyone's looking at this like, well, Tennessee's just going to crush FAU. And it really wasn't the case. FAU did what they had to do late and had a great second half to win. This is the Tennessee team that I saw against Louisiana that couldn't shoot. And then against Duke, they blow, they blow Duke out of the game. And everyone's like, well, Tennessee's so great. They blow Duke. And then Tennessee shot 33%, 6 for 23 in three-point line. Um, and you know they were leading 27-22 at halftime. They've been one of the best defenses in the country. Then Michael Forster, FAU, you know he went on eight nothing run himself, making free throws. And uh, the Volunteers went on a six minute stretch where they scored four points and were outscored 20 to four. And what was impressive about it was FAU. You see how the Volunteers were so tall, so many like seven footers on the team. FAU out rebounded them 40 to 36, 12 offensive boards, 14 points, and uh, just Janelle Davis 15 points, Nick Boyd 12 big win for, I mean, that was just a great win, and they're like, wow, now FAU is for real, because they took this Tennessee team that was heavily favored in this game, yep. and uh, and really just out-muscled them. Michigan State versus Kansas State, this was another great one, and there were times where it looked like Michigan State could get the win here, and Kansas State uh, did what they had to do. This might have been the entire best game of the tournament, absolutely tremendous. Marquise Noel, Noel is called Mr. New York City, From he plays at Kansas State, he had 20 points and 19 assists, breaking the NCAA record. Jerome Tang, a, a great story, he's been a Baylor assistant for a number of years. Uh, they were Kansas State was picked last in the conference, they were 14-17 last year, they haven't been a Final Four since 1964, they go against Michigan State, who's perennially at seems like a Final Four team. Um, and then at 50-45, Noel Trick twists his ankle. You're like, oh, he's he's out of the game. He's not going to – comes back, plays great. Um, Michigan State, they had a chance to win. They missed a one-on-one at 82-80. And then Noel hit a three-point shot. And then uh, uh, then Tyson Walker, you know, they had a chance to blow it to blow it out. You thought that – thought you know, I really thought K-State had a game. But then Tyson Walker ties it up. And then Noel missed a three-pointer at the end of the game. So it goes into overtime. And then Noel had that one play where he was arguing with Jerome Tang on the sideline. Like, look at him. They're arguing. And then just throws the ball to Gun Johnson for a dunk, which was pretty cool. Uh, Michigan State made a foul shot, but then missed their second shot. And uh, But then the key was that Noel made an inbound pass to Masood for the three-point shot. And when Masood hit all those big three points at the end. But that was, to this game, was the back and forth. Noel's playing. Just loved that game. Thought it was tremendous. And I think when people saw that game, they're like, well, Kansas State's going to just blow out FAU. Nobody gave, of all the games FAU's been, I think that this next game, no one gave FAU a chance. No, you're absolutely right. All the people that said Tennessee's going to crush these guys by double digits came in like there is no chance that FAU can hang with Kansas State. And for a little while there, it didn't look like they could. But, man, this team has some resilience. Well, halftime, FAU went. They start, the, the game started was crazy. But then but then they took that 42-28 lead at halftime, 22-9 rebound. Rebound advantage. The kids only had nine rebounds the entire first half, which was amazing. And Golden for FAU, their Russian center, just started dominating, 14 points, 13 rebounds. And Noel was scoring, but he's not. You know, he was 8 for 21, missing tons of shots. And it, it seemed like you know, FAU at point was running away with the game. And uh, Kansas State, they scored. Scored, you know, scored, made it a couple-point game, uh, but then F then uh, Jonah Davis uh, had a steal for FAU, and they ended up winning the game. I mean, he was like perfect for the game, played fantastic. Uh, it, it was just one of those things where we're just a, a huge win that FAU took. Again, they beat Tennessee, they beat Kansas State. They're for real. Like they can win these games. They beat Memphis. I mean, they won. It's, it hasn't been like they just got so lucky that some top seed. They they've actually 
this is the region I thought Duke was going to come out of. Yeah. But FAU deserved it. They beat the team that Duke couldn't beat. So I can't say Duke should have been out in there. B best stat for me for FAU, each game, different leading scorer, different leading rebounder, different leading assist guy. That's a, a, a well-rounded team when everyone can pick up the slack. Just phenomenal run, and I, I'm rooting for them to win it all. But we'll talk more with Coach James Young about that here in just a minute. Let's go to the um, let's go to the South bracket. San Diego State was facing Alabama, and this was another one. Like, Alabama's going to win it all. Now that we've had some number one seeds go out, Alabama's just going to storm through that tournament. Eh, San Diego State said not so fast. Remember, I saw San Diego State play in Orlando. I saw they beat Charleston and they beat Furman. So people aren't like giving them a lot of credit. They beat Charleston, they beat Furman, whatever. Brandon Miller, so great. All the stuff that he's tremendous. He's going to be the third pick in the draft. He shot three for 19, one for 10 from threes, six turnovers. It reminded me of Mark Macon for Temple when he went against Duke one time, and everyone was talking about Mark Macon, Mark Macon. He was six for 29. Um, but it was it was unbelievable. San Jose State trailed 48-39 at the 10-minute mark, and then it was just started blowing them totally out of the game. Uh, it wasn't even close there at the end. I mean, they got, it was, it, they got, Bama got within 66, there were 46 seconds left, but then Brandon Miller missed another three and another three and another three. It was that, it was that, that when that San Jose State went on that run uh, and, and Alabama just could not score the points. I mean, it was just, their, in fact, their entire team just inability to shooting three points after three points after three points and not and not making them. That was just terrible. They were three for 27 from three-point shots. And that was just, you know, just kid, they were just shooting and missing. And San Diego State was getting the rebounds and, and, and played well. And their best player, Michael Bradley, didn't even play well in that game. She made like one basket, but they still ended up beating Alabama. Then we had uh, Creighton facing off against number 15-seeded Princeton. Well, you know, Princeton, <laughs> this is a crazy game. Princeton was trying to be the first Elite Eight team since Penn did it in 1979, which is that year, uh, which was, the I think, the uh, the Larry Bird, Magic Johnson year, too. So that was pretty exciting. But they're this, the first Elite Eight, uh, Creighton's first Elite Eight since 1941 when there was only eight teams and they were in the <laughs> tournament. But uh, Princeton, you got to give them credit. First of all, I wish the Ivy Leagues would not get a 15 seed. Or for, they, I think this team shows that they deserve to get higher seeds in this. But Shireman played great for, for Creighton and they ended up you know, going through and winning this 86-75 setting up Creighton-San Diego State. Yeah, so let's go to Creighton-San Diego State because this is a game that for for a minute there, I, looked, I thought Creighton was going to you know put their foot down on the gas and, and run away with it, but San Diego State again hung with them. You know, it was thirty three twenty eight. These games are so low scoring. Then with a minute thirty seven seconds left, San Diego State takes the lead and Creighton is a shot. And then Creighton, it looks like San Diego had the game totally under control. But Shireman, the guy with the headband, he steals the ball on an inbounds pass and lays it up. Like Hanvillek stole the ball, Hanvillek for the Celtics. What a play! Um, Creighton has uh, then Creighton as uh, Stanley State has the ball. Uh, there's a three second difference between the shot clock and I, I don't know why Creighton fouled. Like they would have been at worst case scenario, they would have forced to take a shot then get the rebound. It was tie. It was a you know it was a tie game. So they so San Jose State's dribbling, dribbling, Creighton fouls. Like I would have never fouled. Like give yourself that extra time. But then that reset the shot clock and then Trammell dot drove. And then he was fouled by Ryan Emhart, and everyone, that's all people talk about today, is whether they should have this foul, and this brings up the Bradbury for the Eagles, and Juju Smith-Schuster, should they, you know, swallow the whistle, and the whole big debate of this, and remember, it reminds me of Hugh Hollins, who made the call that Scottie Pippen on Hubert Davis, when Pippen fouled Hubert Davis by just touching his fingertip. Mm -hmm. I've seen this play 20 times, I thought it was a foul. He put his left hand right on his back and pushed him on the ground. Now, maybe uh, Trammell 
sold it a little better falling the ground. But to me, it looked like a hard foul. Like, I disagree with everybody on this. I really think it was a foul. Like, I think it was a hard foul. He put his right hand up and put his left hand on his waist and pushed him. And I know they weren't calling lots of fouls in the game, but I would have called the foul. I thought, it was, I thought it was a clear foul right in the shot. It wasn't like, I would not want to see someone go to the line like on a hand check, on an inbounds pass, or some other things. But I, I just thought it was a foul, and I think it, was, it should have been called. I, I thought it was a good play. It's Ira on Sports, Trueoldi's channel. It's 716. I'm Mike Balsama. We don't have Coach Young uh, on just yet. Hopefully we'll get him on in a minute or so. Let's keep going, though. Going to the Midwest. So now it's Miami versus Houston. And everyone's like, Miami, you had a nice little run here. But Houston, this is the best team left in, in this tournament. They're going to crush Miami. And, and South Florida basketball did what they did and got another huge win. Yeah, I mean, this is another game where you see these top-seeded teams, the number one seeds, just cannot shoot from the threes. They were 9 for 31 from three. Uh Houston cut the lead. You know, Miami was, this is a game Miami was leading in the game. Houston cut the lead to two in the second half, and then Miami went on a 16-2 run to make it 70-53. Houston never got within 11 points. Uh, this is just tremendous. I mean, again, it, Pax had seven three-pointers. I mean, it just shows in this game, Miami shot three-pointers well. In the game against Texas, they didn't shoot th hardly any three-pointers, but Nigel Pack had seven three-pointers, Isaiah Wong 20, Jordan Miller 13. I mean, this is what's so exciting about this Miami team. They... They they just they, Wong comes on at the in the second half and plays great and that just that the fact that they were able just to distance them and blow that game out and Houston just have any answers and I I just like this Miami like do not count Miami out like any if Miami's losing in the second half they're gonna come back because they have these runs and like Wong the first half looks like he's playing terribly and then the second half he turns it on and just makes play after play after play and they're such a well missive one team that really Larinaga is loose and he's fun and they like they interview at halftime and he's like when. Pack, you know, is like you know, he's just he's just a fun coach when the sidelines, and it shows. You know, his experience with George Mason taking them to the Final Four, um, and this, he's come a lot of fire in Miami. I mean, there's had, had some down years. People think he should be fired. He's too old, and he comes back with a year like this, which is going to put him in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Xavier, Texas was the other game we had to watch. Yeah, and Texas there, you got to give Roddy Terry, who I think he's getting the job now for Texas. Chris Beard uh, got fired in the middle of the season for a domestic violence incident. Terry gets the job. I feel bad for Texas, though. You know, when they D Dylan DeZue, their star player, came in for a couple minutes, didn't play. But, you know, they got balance scoring from Hunter, Carr, Bishop, everything. And it was... It was a big win for them over, and I thought Xavier played poorly in this game. Uh, but I'm going in, going into the game against Miami. I'm like, without Desu, without your best player, like I know they look good, but I think Miami had an advantage going into the game. So then we're getting down to it, and uh, I feel like the national media once again was. Miami just doesn't have what it takes. Texas is going to beat these guys. And Miami, once again, you know, came out here and battled the, the you know, quote-unquote better team and got another huge win. Yeah, this was, it was 45-37 halftime. Then Texas went up 64-51. And I'm watching this game at the Hard Rock, and I'm like, you know, Miami fans are all like, this game's over. It's, it's finished. But then they come on. I mean, they went on this run that was just tremendous. And 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 then there was this. Amir gets four fouls, and you're like, okay, their star center for Miami has four fouls. There's no way they're going to get in. But I like what Miami did. They didn't just start shooting threes. They went to the line, got made their foul shots. Wong got Miller started. To, Jordan Miller was seven for seven, 13 for 13 from the line, 27 points. And you know, they, you know, they only shot two for eight from threes for the game. But it was like, you know, the play of the game was when Omir and kind of 
Cunningham went up for a rebound. And they called the foul on Omir, which had been his fifth foul, and not on Cunningham. But then they reversed it. Omir goes to the line, makes both free throws, makes it 81-79. And then Carr turned the ball over. And then Wong made two free throws. But it just shows in these games. I'll tell you what. Michigan State might have beat Kansas State if they made their field goal free throws. And Miami making their free throws against Texas was crucial. The free throws are so important in these games. Much more important than the three-point shots. But just a big win for Miami. And, and just, just tremendous. I mean, it, it was even... It, it was just it was like one of those things where Jordan Miller everyone talks about Brandon Miller for Alabama he's a big star it was Jordan Miller for Miami and, and what you said is really important and you've been saying it for weeks there's no Steph Curry on the floor here and this is what we saw a lot of teams that lost they got down by 12 points and they're just chucking threes right. and it was you know getting twos especially for bigger more athletic teams this is how you win games you know stay the course and stop chucking the ball up and, and bricking everything so let's go to the West I was really excited for Gonzaga UCLA and this one lived up to the hype um, this was I. I needed Gonzaga to win to win my pool. Like I, <laughs> if Gonzaga gets through, and I love Gonzaga, and I remember last a couple years ago when Jalen Suggs hit the three of the buzzer and they went to the national championship game. And this was a crazy game. Drew Timmy had 36 points, 13 boards. UCLA was up 46-33 at halftime. Uh, but then there was a point where 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 uh, where UCLA didn't score for 11 minutes. They stormed back. They took an eight-point lead with a minute to go. Looked like this game was over. And then Gonzaga's blowing the lead and lets them tie the game. And then Strother it takes the lead, actually. And then Julian Strother comes and drains a three to, to win the game. Uh, again, if you're a UCLA fan, you're like, what just happened? We had this lead. We blew the lead. We then think this game is over with like eight minutes to go with one minute left. We come back and, and take the lead and then, and then we blow the game. So it was like crazy. It was one of those weirdest games. But I still, after that game, I'm like, I love Gonzaga. They're winners. They'll show. They'll do really well. And then it didn't work out. So yeah, that well. game was a roller coaster. <laughs> um, talking about UConn and Arkansas now, I, I think games like this are why people think UConn's just going to run, you know, run through the Final Four to the championship. Because not only are they beating teams on the way here, they're they're crushing teams, and that's what they did to to Arkansas. Well, this is <laughs> this is the craziest thing. I mean, they are just UConn's now. I mean, they beat Arkansas eighty eight to sixty five. The line was only four. Uh, that was what's so crazy. They beat Iona and St. Mary's by a combined 86-49 in the second half. Um, this is one where they, you know, between a fourteen point run at the end of the first half and the beginning of the second half. Yeah, they, at one point in the game, they led by 29 points. And this is an Arkansas team that beat Kansas. Like, <laughs> this is unbelievable. Eric Musselman's taking his shirt off. They're celebrating. They're this. And UConn just looked dominant, just dominant in that game. 722 Ira on Sports, True Oldie Channel, I'm Mike Balsamo. Don't forget, we're all across social media. You can follow Ira at Ira on Sports. So UConn and Gonzaga. And this was a game, Ira, I was really looking forward to this one. I thought this was going to be a fantastic game. And just Gonzaga just came out so flat. It looked like they were not the same team that we'd seen all year. No, Gonzaga looked bad. And then it was Timmy wasn't in foul trouble, then he got in foul trouble at the end of the half. And then he picked up, it was 39-32 at halftime. And then within 25 seconds in the, four, in the, in the uh, second half, Timmy picks up his fourth foul on a weird play. It was like away from the ball. It looked like he threw his elbow. His arm got tied up. When he goes out of the game, and then they went on a 14-3 run, and suddenly it's 60-37. They bring Timmy back, but it's too late. Gonzaga was terrible. Seven for 29 in the second half shooting. Two for 20 from three-point line. I mean, Gonzaga's biggest problem was they couldn't shoot threes. I didn't think they were a great three-point shooter all year. And when they needed to th make threes, they didn't do them. And uh, Connecticut was just dominant. And, that, and that's what people now are looking like. This is Connecticut's tournament to win. They've, they've dominated Iona, St. Mary's, Arkansas and now Gonzaga that's theirs. But we've seen enough in this tournament that, I mean, I, I think, I definitely think they're beatable.
every team that's left in this tournament can win. I, I'm I'm convinced that it, like, well, I shouldn't say convinced. If FAU does happen to go on and and crush this tournament, good for them. You, you know, like I, I think every team can do it, and I'd be excited to see it. We should also mention, uh, you know, as far as South Florida goes, Ira. Nova Southeastern won the Division II championship undefeated season at 32-0. It's basketball time in South Florida. I would say that the NL, let's say one of the questions, that the summary of the tournament is this, is that why, why is there parity? What is going on? And of course, there's a transfer portal. Team people are allowed to transfer in. NIL, Miami took advantage of that. They, they brought in Pac. They paid money for him to come, maybe 800000 They kept Wong when Wong said he was going to leave, so they used the money. They were able to do those things. So I think that's what helped them tremendously. Let's uh, go to the phones here. We've got Coach James Young joining us. Coach, thank you so much for spending some time here on Iron Sports. Good to be on with you, uh, as always. Uh, it's funny, we talked a couple of weeks ago, and here we go. We didn't get one of the teams in the Final Four. <laughs> we got two of them. So, hey, we're, we're, we're going to have Dwight Gooden coming up here, so you're, gonna, you're sort of like the opener for Dwight Gooden. But, <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> my God, he's like, he's like my hero. Like, this, is, this is big. <laughs> but help, you know, we got, so everyone's now saying, I'm listening to the radio, and they're like, this is Connecticut's, if you listen to all the New York, New York and the Northeast radio, they're like, this is Connecticut, they're going to blow out Miami, they blew out everyone else. Talk to me, give me that preview of that Miami-Connecticut game. Well, I think that the, the issue with, with, with Connecticut is the fact that their size with Sunogo playing really well, and, and they have, you know, these defenders with, with, with Jackson is a really tough defender. Hawkins can defend as well. But I, I think this just continues to be the disrespect of Jim Laranega in Miami. Like, there's no way that, that this game should be a, a five, you know, six-point spread. I, I don't believe it. I think what, what Laranega did yesterday was so smart, guys. He turned the game upside down. He said, screw the plays. We're going to play up and down with pace and we're going to make you guard us, and we're going to force you to, to make foul calls. Now, if Amir can stay out of foul trouble, I think, I'm going to say this, I think Miami's got a shot. I think he's got a puncher's chance because they have to guard play between Peck and Miller and Wong. If they're on, they're as good as any three-guard uh, combination in the country. And if Amir can stay out of foul trouble and keep Sonogo and the other big off the board. I think Miami's going to beat this game. I would be, I would be completely stunned if they actually stole, stole it. Is it. Aren't you surprised how Miami against Houston drains all the threes, and then against Texas, they just go to the basket, they make foul shots, they're not shooting threes. They were able to play the three-point shooting game one game, and then two nights later, change it totally around. Yes, and I think it's what, what they did a great job of, as opposed to watching, like let's say, Arkansas against San Diego State, they took what the defense gave them. You know what I'm saying? Like, those are two threes in the first half. They were down big. Instead of them saying, we're going to bomb, bomb, bomb away, they said, no, we're going to spread you out and we're going to get to driving lanes. Now, the shocking thing about Rodney Terry is two things. Number one, he didn't burn more timeouts. I would have been calling timeouts like crazy. And two, with Miami not shooting the three, aren't you stunned that Texas didn't even try a zone defense? Just because they were just getting sliced to the basket. So, Great job by Jim Laranega and basically saying, which makes them dangerous, guys, they can beat you in different ways. And they showed you two different ways within the 48 hours. And then the other game, the preview, now we're here in 
West Palm Beach, a little closer to Boca Raton, but there's fans everywhere. I can't tell you how many people I know that are rooting, because FAU and Miami are really not rivals, so people are like, I'm going to root for both teams. Like, this is great. And it's great to be on the bandwagon, and Dusty May, I'm sure, and Jim Laranega would love anybody on their bandwagons at this point. But the point is, especially if you have money, donate to the program, but FAU and San Diego State, two surprises, but again, FAU is an underdog in this game. Well, guys, I was at the game, I was at the game on a on Saturday night. And I just thought the way that Dusty May adjusted that game and the fact that I thought that General Davis did a great job of not forcing the issue and really being willing to be a distributor, guys, and get other guys shot, I think was the key thing. And, and the other thing is this. This team, if you give them a clean look from three, they're not missing. I mean, they're not missing. So I think the way they shot the ball from three – uh, was really impressive in that game. Uh, you know, because remember, guys, 57-50, that game was about to get away from them. And they, and they, and they turned it around with that big run uh, later in the game. Uh, obviously, Martin was great. Uh, you know, Greenlee was great. You know, we got into a little foul trouble. But I'll tell you, big guy, Vladi Dotty, we like the party. Vlad Golden. Boy, <laughs> when, he, when he inserts himself inside and he did so, he is really tough to guard, and now you have to think about him, which means you open up the three. Now, San Diego State's bigger than Kansas State, but if, uh, but if Vlad can get going, I'm telling you this right now, guys, I don't know why I keep thinking this. I think they're going to win it. Like I, I, like, I really think they're going to win it. This team's won, what, 37 games? They can beat you different ways. They have different guys that can beat you every night. Dusty May's done a great job. I would not be stunned. I think they're going to beat San Diego State. I would not be entirely stunned, even though they're the biggest underdog, if they actually won the whole thing. Well, I tell you, I saw Duke-Tennessee game, and Tennessee just intimidated Duke. And you're thinking, wow. And then Golden against Tennessee is like, FAU goes, we're not intimidated by Tennessee. So Duke, with all those five-star freshmen and all those NBA players, they were intimidated by Tennessee, but not FAU. So I give FAU a ton of credit for that game and for you know everything. They've won against Memphis every different way possible. As you said, Dusty May's ability, Laranega's ability to adjust before the game and in-game has been crucial in this tournament. That, that's the see. That's the sign of a great coach, guys. You know, if you really think about it, or it's like when you have a game plan, you go and doing X. But are you willing to say like this ain't working and throw it out and do something else and be willing to say I'm wrong with what I thought, but I'm man enough to admit it and I'm going to go do it a different way? That's what these two guys do, and they're two of the very best, and they're not going to respect. I mean. They should build a statue for these two guys. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because like, if I'm a, if I'm a high major school anywhere with a ton of money, I'm calling to Larinagum. Now Jimmy's you know, towards the end of the line, but Dusty May, hello, like you have been hold on to him as long as you can. Uh, Book of time. he's a natural treasure right now. Someone's going to come get him within the next year. Uh, James, thanks so much for coming on. We're going to jump to Dwight Good in a second, but I love your comments. I love your enthusiasm, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you after the national championship game and sort of uh, a summary of what happened in this tournament. I thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports. Listen, if there's anybody I'll get off for, it's the doctor. Have a good night, guys. <laughs> James Young, Coach Young NJ on Twitter. Give him a follow. Great stuff. Uh, as always from him, hopefully we can get him back on after the tournament's over. So 
a little bit of a total eclipse of the heart for you, Ira. World Baseball Classics in the books. You were there for the final, and you're completely sold on this now. You told I was wrong. I mean, I was totally <laughs> wrong. You said, Ira, I believe it. Like, you you drank the Kool-Aid. You're like, Ira, here's the Kool-Aid. I said, I don't want any Kool-Aid. I don't want to <laughs> drink it. And you made me drink it. I'm like, you know, I watched it on TV, got excited. I drove down there. The place was packed. I mean, it was packed two hours beforehand. You go to Heat game a minute before the game. There's not money in the set. They, everyone was there. There were tons of kids everywhere. The Japanese fans, 20-some thousand. American fans, 20-some thousand. I've been in that ballpark. Lone Depot Park is a library. It is the quietest really stadium is. in the entire world. <laughs> that place was loud. But I love the Japanese fans. Like, they, when the players are, when the, their pitchers are pitching, they're quiet because they don't want to distract the pitcher. And then when their team is done in the field, they run out. Like, the players come out and meet everybody. The whole bench empties and shakes the hand and it meets everybody coming off the field so that was cool the fact that otani comes in with a flag trout comes in with his flag the fact that every american that their lineup was murderers row I mean, every single player that you could imagine from uh mookie betts to mike trout paul goldschmidt arenado schwarber turner romuto and they only get two runs in this game and i just think as the game went on and the japanese i mean they gave it you know the home run that makasami hit 434 home runs to tie it up 1-1 they got another one make it 2-1 and the bottom four of the kamada home runs make it three one and then they're just hanging on there and you're like where is this american team gonna just score 10 runs 10 runs they don't do it the top of the eighth you darvish the star japanese who in 2009 won their title he's a legend everyone loves him he's placed in san diego everyone he's great now so he'll sign the big contract but schwarber comes in that bat was like 20 at bats he's found every pitch up and it's not like the world series and then schwarber hits that home run yeah. makes it three two and then you're like wait when is otani is our government otani and they kept talking well, is otani gonna come in is he not gonna come in and when he came and in the eighth inning, he's like, he's batting, and then he's running and warming up in the bullpen, and then he's coming back. It's like a high school pitcher, like someone at, 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 in a field of West Palm Beach who's like this best athlete who's pitching and batting and running back and forth. He comes in, and everyone realizes, well, wait, there's a chance now that Trout's going to come out. And then McNeil walks, and then he gets, and then you're like, oh, maybe Otani's just too much stress, too much whatever. And then he gets bets to go to double play, and then Trout comes up, and it's like Trout and Otani, mono a mono, and they throw, and they get to a 3-2 count and he's throwing a hundred he's not just throwing 80 mile 90 mile pitch he's throwing 102 103 101 everyone's going crazy after every pitch and that final pitch that he throws that slider and trout throws his helmet otani throws his glove his helmet the fans went nuts everyone runs i mean it was electric it, you know to not i know mad dog russo and see those people saying well you're blowing this game up too much i'm telling you it was great for baseball i was there I experienced it. It was just tremendous. Most watched baseball game of all time. 42% of Japan watched this. That's huge. And what and about America, too? Over Look 6 million viewers. The most watched game locally and internationally of all time. And it compare it to, like, a championship game. Like, it it, it, it tied, like, the any just under the World Series uh, in terms of watching. It was on Fox Sports 1. Interesting numbers. Before the World Baseball Classic, Shohei Otani, 1.8 million Instagram followers. He's at 5 million now. Guys like Lars Newtbar, 59K to 979,000 followers. So this is good for the game. <laughs> baseball has been knocking it out of the park lately. They have to be happy about this. And I said, look, it's taking away from spring training. I want to see these people in spring training and everything like that. And I, I'm like, I am sad about that. But the, when I was there at that and saw that, I will never forget that. Like, I did not want to miss that game. I didn't. I was right behind home plate. I love that excitement. I, it was literally every single and people were excited. 
it, the, the Japanese fans were great, and the American fans were great. I, I thought maybe it was all Japanese fans. It, it, it really brings out baseball fans. This was tremendous, and I, it was on a Tuesday night. Not a lot of competition. They did everything smart. This is a league, a sport that plays their championship game against the NFL football and college football, where people don't watch this. This was perfect. A Tuesday night, there was nothing else on, but awesome. NBA games that, that whatever it was perfect. Oh, I just so I'm so glad you talked me into. I give you tons of credit. You <laughs> talked me into this, and I have drunk the cola. cola I'm ready for World Baseball Classic. I have to wait three more years. I want it next year. Let's uh, go to part two of our interview with Dwight Gooden. And here it's Iron Sports. So then you you know you finish your you have your a few more years at the New York Mets, um, and then I just want to jump to the time when you came back with the Yankees and you were out of baseball for a year. And then what was the did George Steinbrenner call you up? How how did you get involved? You know, come back into start pitching for the Yankees. Okay, so this is the first time I've, I've told it told the whole story how this really happened. I actually had a trout with the Marlins at the end of the season because Sheffield, my nephew was playing there, and he got me a trout. With, and Dave Dombrowski was the general manager. I went there, I threw on the side, threw well. We actually had a verbal agreement for two years, $5 million. Um, I told him I was going to Puerto Rico just to a little bit because I had missed the, you know, the 95 season. He said, that's fine. When I got home, a good friend of mine, Ray Negron, I don't know if you guys know that name, he works in the Yankees. He's been with the Yankees for a while. Anybody who's good friends with Steinbrenner, he told me he was trying to get me with the Yankees. So he said, um, the next day he goes, I got good news and bad news. <laughs> I said, okay, give me bad news. Okay, the bad news is um, they, they want you to go Puerto Rico and throw first before the Marlins were guaranteed a contract. I said, okay, what's the good news? The good news is we can take the same deal with the Yankees and you can sign a contract right now before you go to Puerto Rico. I said, we got to take the deal with the, with the Yankees. Yeah. That's so it, two, <laughs> two days later, my nephew Gary called me. He goes, man, what happened? How you signed the Yankees? I thought you had to deal with us. I said, yeah, but you guys changed. You wanted me to go to Puerto Rico if I signed a deal. He goes, no, we never said that. And find out that Ray, he made the whole story up for me to sign with the Yankees. Which, <laughs> and in turn, it worked out for the best, you know, because I love New York. I want to stay in New York, even though, the, you know, the Wilpons want to cut ties. I get it. But the way it happened wasn't right. It made me look bad. But the way it all turned out, it was everything, you know, winning the two World Series with the Yankees. There's no hitter in New York. I always wanted to make it right with the fans the way you know it ended in '94. So um, I was very happy for the opportunity to play. Um, first time I met with Mr. Steinbrenner after I signed the deal, I mean, my dad was there. His only concern was, "What have you been doing with your years off?" We didn't talk baseball at all. He was more concerned about me, the person, and that made me feel even you know, that much better and, and welcoming me with the to the Yankees. And um, turned out great. And you know, and just to fast forward to 2000. Um, when we beat the Yankees in the World Series, and I ended up ret- I mean, beating the Mets in the World Series, and I retired. Nothing against the Mets. I'm always going to be a Met, but the way it went down, because um, in 95, when they want to cut ties, I wanted to stay with the Mets. I said, I time for whatever. They said, no, unfortunately, you know, go our separate ways. So I pitched with the Yankees, 96, 97. After 97, I called the Mets again, talked with Steve Phillips. I'd like to come back. I said, we don't have any room. I wish you all the best. I went to Cleveland, 98, 99. After 99, I called the Mets again. I'd like to come back. Doc, we wish you the best, but, you know, we've got nothing here. I signed with Houston, pitched one game, get traded to Tampa. I had eight starts. I get released. I called the Mets again. I said, I'll go to AAA. I'll do whatever I got to do. I just want to finish my career with the Mets. I don't care about the money. So, unfortunately, wish you all the best. Got nothing there. Mr. Steinbrenner called me himself. said, well, do you still want to play? I said, yes. I was living in Tampa at the time. He said, okay, show up at the complex, work with Billy Connors, if it don't work out, you come work for me. Went over there, worked out like three weeks, pitched a couple of rookie league games, 
not nothing special. They call me in the office the next morning. I thought I was going to get released. They said, we need a pitch in New York. Uh, it, was, it was a day-night double hitter. They came, the day game was at Shea. Night game was at Yankee Stadium. They said, we need you to pitch the day game against the Mets. Oh, wow. I couldn't say I wasn't ready. But <laughs> that's all I wanted, just one more time to go to Shea Stadium. I actually pitched well, pitched five innings, got the win. We beat the Mets. They would beat the Mets in the World Series. And I said, what a way to retire. Um, what a way to go out. And at that time, I called the Mets again. I said, can I sign for one day to retire the Mets? They told me no. So I retired the Yankee, which is not a bad thing either. But I hear my number's going to get retired here shortly, so that would be a way to finish it. Oh, that's – what a story. I mean, I was just going to jump into – before we move on to the uh, – I hope I wasn't talking too fast. No, I think that that's story. that's great. I mean, I, that is just – I just was going to ask about the, the no-hitter. I mean, I remember watching it. I remember someone calling me on the phone when you beat Seattle, and it's like early in the game, they're like, Dwight looks great in this game. And I remember watching it, and you won 2-0, and that must have been great to have your you know one no-hitter, you know, in, oh, in Yankee Stadium like that for that win? Oh, you have no idea. And plus, like, you know, because prior to that, I actually got benched. I started out 0-3 that year. Torrey took me out of the rotation. And they were trying to decide whether to release me or send me down. Unfortunately, my good friend David Cohen got the aneurysm in his arm and Steinbrenner and said, put Gooden back in the rotation. Torrey said, I don't think he's, he's ready. Steinbrenner said, put Gooden back in the rotation. My fourth start back in the rotation was the no-hitter. And the day that I pitched no hitter, I was supposed to go home to build my dad, who was having open heart surgery the next day. And that morning, I thought he would probably want me to pitch, even though I had my flight. So I called Tori. Said, I'm coming in. I'm going to pitch. I'm not going home. He said, "Go home. Take as much time you need. Come back when you're ready." I said, "No, I'll be there tonight to pitch." And then I had to call my mom, who didn't take his voice. Said, "No, you have to be here. Your dad is expecting you. He needs the support. All your family's coming here. You have to come." So I actually end up hanging up on my mom feeling that bad so obviously you cheer up a little bit um, throughout the day I get to the ballpark and the first three of that game I would stand in the walkway between the clubhouse and the dugout wondering if my dad's going to be okay that make the right decision am I going to see him again not see him again not into the sixth inning when I realized I had a no hitter you look at the scoreboard to see who's coming up and you see no runs no hits no errors you're like oh man I got a no hitter going even though it's Seattle who in my mind had the best hitting team in baseball in 1996, you know, you're thinking I got a shot, but, you know, let's just try to get the win. Um, the ninth inning of the game, I walked the first two guys, and Mel Starmeyer, and the score's only 2 nothing. Mel Starmeyer comes out to the mound, and he goes, Doc, how you doing? I said, doesn't matter, I'm not coming out. It's <laughs> right. your game. And I got the last out, Paul Sorrento pops up to Jerry Jeter, and saying the ball was in the air forever. It made the last out, you know, I'm cheering, I'm jumping up and down. My teammates would carry me off the field. And all you're thinking about is where I was the prior year, early in the season, you know, in the bullpen, about to get released. Is my dad going to be okay? What's going to happen? Obviously, you don't sleep that night. And I took a ball from the game home to the hospital the next day. And when I got there, he had the surgery. The doctor said, watch the game. He never made it home from the hospital, but the last game he saw me pitch was a no-hitter. And that's what made it that much more special. Oh, my. What a story. <laughs> that's uh... – and what did after that was done? What what um, what did Stein? What did George, What did your teammates like? What did Jeter say? What did Steinbrenner say? What oh, was? Oh man, it was like unbelievable because Steinbrenner. Let me let me move back. So after I saw up zero three, I walk out of Yankee Stadium with my wife at the time, and I said, "George likes to meet my wife." He goes, "When are you gonna win the Elfin game?" You know. So <laughs> after that no hitter, he goes, "Man, no matter what happens the rest of the year, you're my hero." And the hit that come from 
George Steinbrenner, that meant the world to me and gave me the world of confidence. Even though you have been playing a while, I have been playing you know, 11, 10 years at a time. But when you have an owner like that tell you that I'm a hero to him on what I just accomplished, that meant the world to me. It meant a lot. And I got a chance to work for George when I retired for six years and get to know him, the man, with this tremendous feeling as well. Wow, that's amazing. Do you think with the Mets, uh, Steve Cohn now, who owns it, is so is a true Mets fan, not like the Wilpons, who it seemed like they wanted to own the Brooklyn Dodgers. Do you think you're going to see a lot of the Mets come back? Is it going to be, are we going to get more of a sense about the Mets' history and those things? I mean, they just, you know, they t- it took them forever to put the statue up for Tom Seaver. Uh, have you got any, has Cohn reached out to you? Has someone from the Mets reached out to you about more, about becoming more involved with the Mets? Uh, 100%. They are definitely involved with the alumni now. And while I was with the Yankees, you know, I used to go to spring training to see DiMaggio, Guidry, Yogi, Goose. I mean, all these guys, Reggie Jackson, the Mets, you know, they have Franco come in for a week, Piazza come in for a week, and that's pretty much it. Um, no knocking on those guys, but that was it. But now with the new ownership, he's into having the fans, you know, take part, what they want on Twitter, getting in contact with alumni, having different stuff at the ballpark. And I think that's great, for obviously, for the alumni, but it's great for the fans, great for the organization, great for the, the team that they have now. Just, you know, the knowledge you can get, the picking the knowledge – from these guys because we had the guys on our team that had a lot of baseball knowledge. So I think it's a one-win for everybody, and I'm glad with the new ownership and the direction that the organization is headed now. I heard, was it the story is in, when they met the Shea, in 2008 when they went to Shea Stadium to City Field, you went and signed the wall, and they're like, you weren't supposed to sign the wall, so they had to take the wall oh, out somewhere. That was unbelievable. So I go there because uh, it was uh, 2000, 2008, it was City Field. So it was City Field. The first year at City Field, I think 2009. So my nephew... Gary Sheffield was playing. So I was going to see him play. And a guy asked me to sign the wall at the restaurant there. He was the general manager. Whatever. He had the Sharpie. He handed me the Sharpie. I signed the wall. They wanted me to put some sats. So I put, like, Rick of the Year, Cy Young, whatever. The next day, Jay Horace called me. He goes, Doc, what are you doing? You can't be signing the stadium. He made it seem like I was writing graffiti over the stadium. <laughs> you know? I'm like, the guy asked me to sign. He goes, it wasn't a good idea to do that. And so then, I guess they tried to get the guy. They tried to remove the guy from the park. They took that part of the wall out of the stadium, and somehow the media got hold to it, and the media buried the Mets on it about that. Later that year, no, the next year, they put myself, Strawberry, Cashman, and David Johnson all into the Hall of Fame all at once. Well, normally, you have your day. Like, when they put, say, Mookie, Franco, Keith, and all those guys in, it was their day. They threw all the 86 guys in at one time. Like, so let's get rid of these guys. Let's get them out of here. <laughs> you know, that's the way I felt. But the new ownership definitely brought the good, warm feeling back. It makes you feel like you was a part of something special. What? What? Who was the toughest hitter you ever faced? For me, it was Chili Davis. You thought like uh, Tony Gwynn or uh, Bonds, but Chili was the one guy I could not get out. I mean, back then you could, you know, you could hit guys, you could throw high and tight touch, and he made me get the ball down in the strike zone. He would foul off the tough pitches. When I made a mistake, he made me pay, but. Even when he went to the Yankees, I was in Cleveland. I could not get this guy out. He was by far my toughest hitter. We had Dave Parker on our show. We've had Dave Parker, Rod. You, you were probably after Rod Carew. We had Rod Carew, Dave Parker uh, on our show. I don't. Did you, ever, did you ever face Dave Parker? I faced Parker, and Parker used to always tell me, you know, if I ever get you, he never got a home run. He got some hits, but remember how Parker he hit the home run, and especially with Cincinnati, he was starting to trot going towards Cincinnati dugout, pointing his fingers out. He goes back in. I was, he said, if I ever get you, Doc, it's going to be the longest trot you ever seen in life. <laughs> That's what he used to tell me, but he never got me. And Parker was a good friend of mine. I know he's 
struggling a little bit. Um, but I love Parker. He's another guy I think should be in the Hall of Fame. I, I, it's amazing. I, I, we brought this up. He has 2,800 hits, rolling his 2,000. He has more home runs, and he's uh, viewed as one of the best defensive outfielders of all time. So it's shocking that when Roland gets in and, and Parker doesn't. But uh, Yeah, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. He uh, should be in by far. Because he's one of the most intimidating hitters to play in our area as, as well. I don't understand. Hopefully get it right. So they talk about, you know, about current baseball has now, people say that one of the reasons why your career at the end, you were struggling is that you've pitched too much. And now the pitchers, you know, you don't ever pitch over 100 pitches. If you see a pitcher hit a pitch 110, it's like, what's going on? It's crazy. You can't, you know, know all those things. What do you think about pitch counts? What do you think about pulling pitchers after four or five innings? Those things. See, that's another thing, and you guys are all working in my favor. I need you guys to be on the committee <laughs> to play my case for me. You guys are right on. But you're right. You know, my time is say, oh, you know, you pitch. You know, my time, I, I wouldn't have done it no other way. That's just the way we was brought up. You know, you try to go deep into games. You want to finish the games. But now I don't fault the pitchers. It's more the, the teams. Like if baseball is like a copycat league, like if one team does something and they have success, then all the teams does it. So I don't necessarily blame the pitchers individually. I blame the way that the baseball system is going now with analytics and all that. But I think I'd rather have a guy, if he's pitching – say six, seven innings and, and totally dominating, I really had that guy go back out for the eighth, ninth inning, even if he's at 100 pitches. Um, as long as he's not coming back from an injury or having any arm problems, I'll let him go. Then take a chance from a middle reliever coming in. I haven't seen him pitch that day. But they're big on, <clears throat> as you mentioned, a guy throwing 100 pitches on facing lineup the third time around. To me, it's a big difference throwing 100 pitches in three innings as opposed to throwing 100 pitches in seven, eight innings. So hopefully... They get back to letting these pitchers go deep in the games because they're killing the bullpens, I think. And, you know, and plus, you're having more injuries now than you had before because everything's about velocity, everything's about spin rate. They're not teaching these guys mechanics anymore. You know, if you throw, if you throw 98, 99, they're going to put you in there. Like, if you take a guy like Greg Maddox or Tom Glavin, they wouldn't even look at these guys today because their velocity wasn't hitting 97, 98. There was more 90, 91. What did you use to throw the ball at? What was your speeds? What did you Back then, in my prime, I was anywhere between 96 and 98. You know, um, and plus from what I hear, I don't, I don't have any way to back this up. But from what I hear, they, they, they get the speed when it, in the guy's hand, when at least the hand. You know, in my era, they was getting the speed once across the plate. So that's the difference now, where everybody's throwing, you know, 97, 98. <laughs> and what about what about like now they're going to have pitch clocks? You know, they have pitch clocks, but sort of in next year it's going to be a pitch clock. They they eliminated the shift, all these different things that are coming in in terms of the rules. Uh, what do you think about what do you think about a pitch clock with that? I mean, you pitch pretty quickly, so I don't know if that would have affected you as much. But yeah, I just think it's too much now. Me, me personally, I'm a fan of the game, but I'm also an old school fan. I think they're messing up a beautiful game. Um, I like the the replay. Like in the outfield with a foul home runs or the guy make a catch, especially in the playoffs or World Series. I like that. But all the other stuff where you're stopping for the replay, but the guy's still in second base or the tag up, or now the pitch clock and he's got a certain amount of time, he's going to do two pickoffs. I think they mess up a beautiful game. It's coming into a video game now. They're taking the fun away now. Even with all the analytics, you know, the, the, the shifts and all this stuff, it's too much. They're not letting these guys learn how to play the game because you're telling them everything. I mean, now. Even when we look at the outfielders, they got all these armbands on like a quarterback. <laughs> Looking at way shot player guy. That guy is learned by watching the game. Right. That's a good That's point. Too much. 
That's a good point. That's a good point. You know, you, you mentioned about going going through a lineup the third time in a lineup. You know, people are saying now, oh, it's impossible. You know, you don't want to have a pitcher pitch the third time through a lineup. That's when they're going to get all their hits. But, of course, you know, you pitched uh, in your in your life. You pitched, uh, I'm trying to get how many total complete games, 68 complete games, 24 shutouts. So you've seen the lineup many times. So what is it, what is it like the third and fourth time through a lineup? I think they're saying like the, the hitters have seen you now. They 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 got you now or whatever. But that's fine. If, if your stuff is all, it doesn't matter if the hitters have seen you. I mean, it's still it's about making your pitches, limiting mistakes around the middle of the plate, reading bat speed. That's about pitching. Um, but they they feel like the hitters have seen you now. Your stuff is not as sharp. But I, I totally disagree with that. I mean, every pitcher's individual is differently. Some pitches you get stronger as the game goes. Most aces, most of the power guys especially, if you don't get them in the early part of the game, you're not going to get those guys. So I totally disagree with all the analytic stuff to that. I think some analytic stuff is good, but some of it's bad. I'd rather go with a guy until he shows me he's getting tired or the hitter's catching up. Then you make the change. But just to make it because we don't want him to face the line of the third time around because analytics says this, analytics says that, that's totally bull. I mean, the same way when they say – can't throw this guy fastballs. He can't throw this guy breaking balls. He's a good fastball hitter. But it doesn't tell you whose fastball he's a great hitter against or whose curveball he's a great, right, great hitter right, against. Right. Everybody's stuff is different. So, I mean, they got to look deeper into this stuff than what they do. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the analytics, I, I, it's just like they're just, you know, someone has to enter, you know, a number in terms of what it was and who's it against. And, and you see that in basketball, too, um, you know, and it just it depends on situations and, and the person entering has to make determinations. So what? 100%. And you don't know that guy, if he had his stuff that day, if he didn't have his stuff, I mean, you don't know that. I mean, some guys, like I just mentioned, Tilly Davis, they can tell me, don't, you can't tell the guy, you can't tell that. That's just one guy I have trouble with anyway, so I got to keep the guys off base. Right, right. Be. And, and with him, I got to walk Chili four times, I walk him four times. That's where you approach that. But all these other things, you can't tell this guy this, you can't tell this guy that. Because more than any position, the pitcher, you're taught to be aggressive and attack. Once you start pitching defensively, you're already in trouble. And I use that as an example. I go back to the, the uh, 2015 Mets. They had, they had Matt Harvey. They had DeGrom. They had Syndergaard. All these guys doing um, Stephen Matz. All these guys doing 98-99. They're playing Kansas City in the World Series. They say Kansas City, the report was Kansas City is a great hitting fastball team. Okay, that's fine. But then these guys start off curveball, ball one, changeup, ball two. Now you have to come with a fastball, and everybody in the world knows what you're coming with. It makes it a lot easier to hit. Instead of going with your best pitch, locate it, and, and go with your best stuff. If you're throwing 97, 98, and these guys are fastball hitters, but you're, you know, you're throwing quality pitches, so what they hit, they're not going to do much damage. But when you fall behind and they know it's coming, and they can cheat you, there's a big difference. So I think that kind of caused the mess in 2015, in my opinion. So we're talking about um, pitching in New York, and you're – probably the expert pitching on the Yankees and the Mets and being a, the dominant pitcher at a time. So many pitchers, it seems, comes to the city and comes to New York and in the bigger markets. And it's one thing to pitch. You know, I pushed A.J. Burnett, you know, who's a pirate pitcher and stuff like that. You come to New York and, it's, and, and they can't withstand the pressure. They can't. They just they're, they're not the same pitcher. Then they go back to a smaller market, a Kansas City or a Pittsburgh, and they're successful. But what is was it like that it is pitching in New York that makes it so difficult for so many of these pitchers who come there and Sign the big money contracts. I think sometimes it's the expectations that they put on themselves, the expectations that the fans have, the media, and these guys, they have a bad game. You know, they get booed. But I always try to tell pitchers that come in, um, like Kenny Rogers. I played with Kenny Rogers with the Yankees. I grew up with Kenny Rogers in Tampa. 
but a lot of times he's already defeated because he's worrying about well, the media, he's worrying about the fans, are they going to boo me? And I think if these guys can understand that if you get booed, they'll boo in your performance, not necessarily you. They'll boo in your performance. That's like if you go to a Broadway play, and the play's not any good or whoever's singing forget the notes, you're going to boo But you're booing the performance because you don't really know the, 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 um, the person or the player. And if the guys can you know, get over that, I think they'll be fine. I understand that playing in New York, my opinion, is one of the best places to play because the fans and the media have a little bit more knowledge and they're more into the game than – Say, no knock on Cleveland, anything like that. But when I played in Cleveland, you had a sellout crowd, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as noisy. The fans weren't really on their feet. It was more of a place where you just go meet after, after work or whatever. That's what it felt like. But and no knock expectations playing in New York. But I think a lot of times players are already mentally defeated when they come there. If they don't have success right away, or if they haven't played in a big market, the expectation they put on themselves and all that just overwhelms them. Um, and then we're talking to Doc Gooden, legendary New York Madden Yankee pitcher. What the the current Mets? You must be excited. The fact that they're it seems like they're spending money. You know they were so cheap for so many years, and now it's like whoever is out there, we're going to go get. And it must be exciting. And you're probably really looking forward to this year. Are you going to be able? Are you are you going to be at spring training working with the team? Uh, I won't be working with the team, but I'm definitely. Excited about it. Uh, I go down for spring training every year with a couple of friends. We just kind of meet the new guys and hang out, um, watch a couple of games. Go to, I go to a lot of games. I live in New York. Um, I go to a lot of Yankee games as well. Uh, but I'm always going to be a Met. And it's great to see that you have the ownership that's willing to put a great product on the field for the fans who's paying all this money you know, for tickets, for souvenirs, hot dog and burger, whatever, parking. But you make it worth it now. You come out, you have a chance. You have a great team on the field every day. It makes it exciting to watch. Because I always said in New York, you can't rebuild in New York. You got to put a successful team out there on the field. And the fans would come out and they would support uh, 100%. So it's good to see that. I'm glad the ownership now get that. No knock against the Wilpons, but you have an owner now that understands that and is in a position to put a winning team on the field every time. Now it's up to the players to go out and perform. So to follow you on your in, in your social media, it's at Doc Gooden sixteen. Is that correct? Is that the right uh, moniker? Yes, sir. Yes, at, sir. At Doc Gooden, D O C Gooden sixteen. And are any shows or anything you're you're doing that you want to promote or tell people to, to go to down here in Florida or even nationally? Uh, Florida, I don't have anything going right now, but uh, we're getting ready to make a big splash with stuff coming out. Um, you look forward to seeing the Doc Gooden story. My movie's getting ready to go in the process. We're gonna start filming here shortly, so I'm excited about that. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Tell us, wait, you're, you're, so there's a movie coming out. Is it going to be on Netflix? What's it going to be on? Yeah, hopefully, it's going to be at the at the theaters or Netflix. One or two, we're not sure yet. But it's going to be from my my childhood all the way to like the no hitter. But guys can see how I grew up and you know everything that's going on. I've got that going now. And um, in Florida, you know, I do a lot of stuff in Florida. Like I said, I mentioned Belmont Heights Little League in Tampa. Man, Gary will be doing some stuff down there coming up in this summer. So um, stay looking out for that as well. That's fantastic. Well, when spring training starts, when you come over to this side of uh, Florida, we'd love, I'd love to go, you know, stop in the studio. We'd love to go to the game with you. You know, there, there's three stages. You go up to Port St. Lucie. You can play the ballpark of the Palm Beaches and Roger Dean Stadium. We have everybody playing. Oh, for sure. Let's, let's definitely stay in touch and let's do that. And you guys keep up the good work. And thank you guys for having me. Oh, we'll definitely do that. I appreciate it. I hope your ankle feels better and gets a quick recovery from that. But oh, I know. Yeah. 
thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, my listeners, I'm sure, are appreciate hearing your stories and reliving some of the best years of baseball I've ever seen in terms of your pitching. Every night that you pitched, it was must-see TV, must-be at the stadium. So thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. I appreciate oh. it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me, and I look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Truly a fascinating gentleman, Doc Gooden. If you'd like to hear part one of that interview, soundcloud.com slash Ira on sports. That's what you're listening to on the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, you've been busy. Watching a lot of tennis. I love tennis, and I love the Miami Open, and it has been great to go down there because people say you have the stadium to go into. It used to be at Key Biscayne, and now it's at in, in Miami Gardens where the Dolphins play, but they put stadiums around it, and... There's, all, there's so many great tennis players right now. It's not just Djokovic and Nadal. They're not playing in this, but there's other great players. And it's so – they can't put, all play in the same stadium at one time. There's three matches during the day and two at night. So it's great to go to the other stadiums around. You can sit in these small little – like it's almost like high school stadiums, high school little seats with bleachers and watch the top ten players in the world. Uh, that's what's so cool. I mean, they're building the F1 track around. I mean, it is pretty crazy. You're watching a court. They're banging, making this gigantic stadiums for all the F1. They have loud music because it's like more of a club party atmosphere there and they're cooking you know like and they're cooking food and you can have the hot dogs and hamburgers and smell all that and they're trying to play so it's weird with that but you guys are about upsets there's been so many upsets in this tournament the women's side only six of the top 16 of seeds made it through and only 10 of the 16 men uh the courts are so fast so it lets players that have good serves hang in there um it's super hot and uh with everything else and also it's miami and i'm sure some of these star players some of the fans scream out they go what'd you do last night today i saw faa lose and someone was saying, oh, are you out partying and things like that when, when they don't play so well. Uh, Carlos Acres was so cool today, though. I got, I was watching one match. I walked to another, and they were all the top players were practicing. And I got to see Carlos Acres, the one player in the world, practice. And he's hitting, and this is a funny story, and then he's done playing. And then Rublev comes on, and he's like, he's making fun of Rublev. He goes, oh, you're throwing me off the court, da-da-da. And then they give themselves a big hug. And then Rublev starts hitting, and then he's hitting with someone. And I thought, wow, this must be, this guy must be really good. And then I realized, because I wasn't, I'm my eye, and I realized, it's Taylor. Taylor Fritz is one of the star <laughs> players. I'm like, oh, okay, of course he's very good. He's one of the top five players in the world. So all they were hitting together and they were having a great time. And they're like a bunch of old men. They hit for like five minutes. It's super hot. Then they sit down and tell jokes and their teams around them and they're laughing. And it was really cool to see that. And I love being out there. And, and as I said, we got another few days of, of this whole week uh, of, of action. And uh, TFO's playing tonight. But Alcaraz looks like he's playing great. He plays Tommy Paul, who I've seen, a good young American player. Fritz plays Hogaruma from Norway. He's going to be a great match tomorrow, and center plays Rublev tomorrow. But it's a, this is it's probably going to be Medvedev versus Akaraz in the final, but I, I really like the quarterfinals and how this is going to work out. The women's, boy, crazy. Coca Golf lost. Um, only Jessica Bogle is the only American left. It is crazy what's happened with the top seeds, uh, but uh, hopefully Pagula does well for the Americans. We only have a little bit of time here. The last WGC event is in the books with Scotty Scheffler not repeating. There's only one person ever who's repeated as a WGC champ. Tiger Woods did it eight times. <laughs> but congratulations to Sam Burns. It was a fun weekend of golf. They try to do this like the NCAA where they have a, they, a match play, and then they go make it to field of 64, then 32-16, the final four, and Sam, Sam Burns. I mean, it was, Rory played Scheffler in the in the third-place game, which they used to mm -hmm. play. They used to play a third-place game in the tournament. They don't do it anymore. Two and one, but Sam Burns be, beats Cam Young. Uh, this week, the Valero had opened, and then Liv has a golf tournament in Orlando. And then in two weeks, the Masters. And this Masters, could you 
ever been so much excitement. You have Tiger pro almost certainly playing in the Masters. He's given every indication he's going to play. But then you have all the live golfers that are coming back, yes. see how they're going to play. And it should be, they usually have the name, like, does this golfer play with Titleist or what ball they play? It should be a live golfer or a non-live <laughs> golfer. And this is going to be exciting. And considering the world worlds between words between all the different players and Rory, I mean, could you go down to the final day and you're going to have Rory McIlroy and Dustin Johnson and it would be super. So breaking news earlier today, Lamar Jackson apparently requested a trade from the Ravens uh, earlier in the year. Just came out minutes ago. He wants to go to the Patriots. That's his preferred <laughs> destination. I don't know if it would work. What do you think? Well, all I'm going to say this is is that Lamar Jackson, it's one thing that he wants the guaranteed contract that Deshaun Watson had, which is hard. But when you don't have an agent and now he's having someone call around, the thing is that the agents don't like this because they want you to have agents because it's important for them to have agents. And then the Players Association came out saying, wait a second, you have somebody that's not even certified by as an agency, yes. which the players are saying, we want you. By the so it's not that impossible. It's like take a, a take-home test, pay $500 fine. If you're negotiating a three, four hundred, three hundred million dollar contract, get certified as an agent. Don't have someone call around. It's how he's handling this. I mean, Deshaun Watson had a lot of legal problem, and he's and Lamar Jackson, and but he had good lawyer to get him out of the legal problems, and he had a good agent who was negotiating these deals. And you just can't have your mom and your uncle and your whatever grandmother and everyone else that he's have and people calling around. And that's why this is not working, and this is a mess. And that's why teams aren't you know aren't working and signing him. What are you doing this week? This week, uh, I got tennis tomorrow, tennis Wednesday, and then going to the Final Four. So I'll be in the Final Four. So but great, another great week of, of sports. Thank you so much to Coach James Young, Doc Gooden. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.